hope you're uh, enjoying the last day of 23. And at this moment, we're literally hours away from the new year. So now seems a good time as any to talk about our callings. Have you found your calling in life? Did you miss your calling, as some people say? Do you need to rediscover it? We could disagree on many points here, but I don't think it's a controversial take to repeat what this one author had to say. Quote, Calling is not only a matter of being and doing what we are, but also of becoming what we are not yet, but are called by God to be. End quote. In other words, while you review today who you are and what you've done in 23, Consider how your calling will drastically shape what you'll do in 24, what you'll become in 24. That's the power of God's calling. Your family, your career, your studies, even your extracurriculars, nothing's left unaffected by it. So think about this carefully. And I believe that the contents of 1 Corinthians will be an important guide in this process course, entirety of the Bible is, but this morning we're looking at this letter, and before we read this morning's sermon verses, let's discuss the context a bit, and that'll help us review. Towards the end of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul brought together, or brings together, two major strands of thought, and he ties them together into a knot, as it were. One strand I'll name God's calling of grace. The other strand I'll call it God's paradox of salvation. Combined, we have this one big idea that what I call the paradoxical call. You see it in summary form in verses 23 to 24. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul's going to examine the intricacies of this knot further in verses 26 to 31. But first, let's untie the knot, observe the two strands separately for just a moment before we tie them back together. First, Paul returned to the concept of calling presented at the very beginning of this letter, right from its start at the greetings. Here's what I mean. After Paul introduces himself as one called to be an apostle by God's will, in verse um, 1 there, he reminds the church at Corinth that they're called to be saints, in verse 2. Next, if you skip down to verses 4 to 9, Paul, with gratitude, reflects on the Lord's call of these saints, how it was gracious is evidenced by spiritual plenty, efficiency, or sufficiency, and intimacy. That's the first strand, God's call of grace. Now onto the second strand, the paradox of salvation. Paul takes more time and effort with this strand. In verses 10 to 17, Paul began the main letter body, pointing to the division of the Corinthian body. He pleads for unity in Christ's great name. He asks them to stop revering lesser names. After all, it's not the wisdom of words or the number of baptisms that matters most. 
It's the gospel preaching that must be foremost. So those human qualities that the world glamorizes, charm, eloquence, popularity, do not align with our presentation of Christ. In verses 18 to 25, Paul explains this conflict between God's ways and man's ways. He reminds the believers that the Lord judges the wisdom of the world. The world through its own wisdom did not know God, he says. Though God in his wisdom gave those who are perishing a message that's absurd in their ears. Only by humbling themselves and believing in it can they be saved. This message is contrary to the expectations of signs and their demands of wisdom. Again, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. To those who are being saved, we value Jesus and cherish him. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But it's not only the Lord's mean or method of salvation that's surprising. God's choice of whom he saves also messes with our expectations. That gets us back to today. In verses 26 to 31, Paul again speaks of our paradoxical call. Unpacking the truths of what I see in verses 23 to 24. So let's read now verses 26 to 31 of 1 Corinthians 1. Before I speak any more here. For you see your, own, your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has spoke, uh, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. There's a simple structure to this passage. The word glory, the verb, not the noun, carves out verses 26 to 29 as one unit, Verses 30 to 31 as another. Also significant is the word flesh in verses 26 and 29, and it gives major hints to the theme of verses 26 to 29. Not only that, the principles are also fairly easy to understand, even if it's hard on our pride. I could even say it in one sentence. Do not glory in the flesh, but glory in the Lord. To put a bit more meat on those exhortations, I'd offer two points. Consider making them your 24 New Year resolution. One, talk little of self and review your humble calling. Talk little of yourself or self and review your humble calling. Verses 26 to 29. Two, talk big of God as you view Christ's greatness. Talk big of God as you view 
Christ's greatness. That's verses 30 to 31. So first, talk little of self and review your humble calling. Just to be clear about the Corinthians, Paul's not saying in verses 26 to 29 that every single individual in the congregation comes from the lower strata of the society. Not all of them were less educated or more disadvantaged. There were some exceptional people there. It's just that as he repeatedly says, there's not many. The few that were include Crispus and Sosthenes, the synagogue rulers, Erastus, the city treasurer. But not much here in the eyes of the world, despite the large number of Christians at this church. But this lack of pedigree and at least in community is not a cause for concern. God uses what's less than ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. And if the Lord saves us through his own weakness and foolishness, of course we should delight in our own weakness and foolishness. Paul helps us by calling attention to these when he says, you see your calling, brethren. He's helping them review their humble calling. This was all according to the Lord's delivered plan. Three times you see in verses 27 to 28 this pattern. God has chosen to, or in order to. He purposely picked out the foolish and the weak things, the base things and the things despised by this world. There are things which are not, that is, things without substance or weight. That's mostly who we are. Yet by God's gracious election, we're used to embarrass the wise and the mighty. We're used to make heroes of our age into zeros. He does something great with the good-for-nothings. This is nothing new in the way God worked in redemption history. He who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. He called Abraham, a 75-year-old man, out of idolatry. He promised them that he'd be a great nation. He called Moses, an 80-year-old runaway from Egypt, slow of speech and slow of tongue, out of obscurity and out of wilderness to deliver Israel. He called Mary and Joseph, a poor young couple, out of an insignificant city of Galilee, Nazareth, to be parents of God's son. And now he has called a bunch of nobodies out of Corinth to be set apart in Christ Jesus. If I may use a modern sports analogy, a coach drafted unquestionably the worst players in existence to beat the best. There's no way that they'd be favors on any Sunday. Yet in preparation, the coach reveals the power of his genius and his empowering influence. Trust me and my plan, he says. Block out the noise. Sure, there are many naysayers out there, but they don't get it because they're not called into this locker room. The rest is history. The victories are certain. All the credit belongs to the great coach who chose them. There's, of course, a limitation to this example, but try to bear with me here. As we gather on Sundays, we're told that the Lord, our great leader, has dubbed us for the dub, if you want to use 
modern terms here, but we're more than conquerors. We're overcome, overcomers who are not overwhelmed. As we hear and believe his promises, we're reminded that none of the credit is ours. It's all God, his purposes, and his grace were merely earthen vessels. His is the treasure. The excellence of the power is of God and not of us. The Lord didn't choose us so that we can make much of ourselves. He chose us as we are, weak in the flesh, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's how Paul brings it all together in verse 29. So let's talk a little of self and review our humble calling. As a way of application, perhaps you can spend some time today or early this coming week in 24 asking yourself this question. What would we be without Christ? There's someone in my house who likes to ask me at times, what would you do without me? The question usually comes up when I got something on my face or lose my keys or I'm coming down with something. And now you might wonder who that is, but uh, I think you guys can guess. But uh, it's not my kids. <laughs> well, no matter, I'm taking that question and changing it for our purposes to review our humble calling and reflect on God's amazing grace. What would you be without Christ? What would I be without Christ? You know, my review process, I mean, can go way back, but I think, about, I think about my turbulent teenage years. I think of my broken home growing up in Laurel. In my memory are fights between my parents in the middle of the night, my father reeking of alcohol, my mother in tears. I think of my time at school, just being feeling like an outcast. What's my identity? Am I Korean? Am I American? Do I try to fit in with the jocks? Do I you know, go back to my roots and fit in with the Asians? Or do I try to be one of the rockers? Of course, none of my own efforts to find happiness worked. Seattle grunge music and experiments with drugs were not helping. I retreated into my shell and started to get used to it. If it wasn't for God's gracious call, then maybe the thoughts of ending my own life would have gone beyond mere thoughts. What would I be without Christ? What would you be without Christ? Go home, open up some old photo albums, jot down some notes on your pre-Christ days before you were born again. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, there must have been a time when you realized the truth that no flesh will be justified in God's sight, when you felt the conviction of the law and by the law is the knowledge of sin. You did once walk according to the course of this world. You were once darkness and disobedient to the Lord. You were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Even if it may pain you to look back to those days, I think it's biblical to do so. See your calling, brethren. Now, as we're told to stop boasting in the flesh, we're not told just to 
merely stop doing one thing, we're told to do something else. True, no flesh should glory in his presence. But the chapter does not stop at verse 29. We have two more verses of further instructions. We're told not only to talk little of self and review your calling, you must talk big of God as you view Christ's greatness. As you go through verses 30 to 31, you could argue that Paul tangentially deals with each of the five solas of the Reformation. Obviously, he didn't consciously intend that. Paul lived like 1,500 years before the Reformation, before Luther. That'd be anachronism, but perhaps it'd be pedagogically effective to keep the five points in mind. Grace, Christ, faith, scripture, glory in that specific order there. In verse 30, Paul touches upon grace and faith implicitly and Christ explicitly. When it says of him, we're talking about God's grace. The preposition of can be expanded to mean because of, and of course him refers to God in whose presence we have nothing to boast. In and of ourselves, in our flesh, we don't amount to much. Foolish, weak, base. Of God, by his grace. There's so much more. Specifically, there's so much more in Jesus. Remember, God called us into fellowship with his son to unite with him. That relationship with Christ gave us all that we needed more. The second half of verse 30 gives us four titles of Jesus besides Christ. These are titles that make sense once we see the power and wisdom in Christ crucified. By dwelling on these titles, We can talk big of God as we view Christ's greatness. Let's go through each of these four titles. Now, as we do, picture yourself in four different rooms. First, let's go to the classroom. Christ became for us wisdom from God. By this, we're not merely saying Jesus is a man filled with wisdom or he's one of many teachers from God. We're saying more, a lot more. We're saying Christ embodies wisdom. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's not a teacher. He's our one teacher. Having learned from him, our mission is to disciple and teach nations to observe all things that he commanded us. Before I go on, I should stop to say my thoughts on the structure here. I think that the next three titles explain how Jesus is the wisdom from God, how he is the wisdom from God. I mean that God's wisdom is proved in him justifying, sanctifying, and redeeming us. To be more specific, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption put together tell us what the cross of Christ has accomplished in God's wisdom. So then Jesus, wisdom from God, is our righteousness. With this word, we move from the classroom to the courtroom. No, not the traffic court that I visited once 20 years ago. That place pales in comparison to where you stand now in this imagination here, the supreme court of the universe. You're on trial and your eternity's at stake. 
just picture it, at the tribunal seat sits the judge of all earth who does right. By no means does he clear the guilty. All humanity stands naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And based on the standards of the Lord's holiness, we're in deep trouble. We're all under sin and guilty before God. God gave us his laws of nature and laws of morality, but we did not worship, we did not respond in worship and obedience. Rather, we've sinned in thought, word, and deed. We've coveted, lusted, hated, lied, blasphemed, and stole. You can't be good enough. To break one command of God is as if you broke them all. Even if you were to keep one command, then you'd be obligated to keep them all. That's our predicament. We're under condemnation. Just imagine how you feel in that moment standing in the court of justice. Your list of sins exposed before him, before the Holy One who has power to cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Our only hope of avoiding that just sentence of hell, eternity apart from God, is the gospel. Be found in Jesus, not having our own righteousness, which is from the law, There's another righteousness, which is through faith in Christ. True faith connects us to Jesus. We can rest our hopes of heaven in him, not in ourselves or our good works. And here's what Christ did for us sinners. He went to the cross, gave his life, shed his blood for payment of sin to satisfy the just wrath of God. He did the right thing to save us from our wrongdoings. He rose again from the grave on the third day and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Before that fearful day, you must repent, turn from sin and self-righteousness. Trust in Jesus only. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Once you have Jesus as your Savior, You have him as your righteousness. He's yours forever. Your eternity destiny's sure. Even as you struggle with sin, even as you're discouraged in your walk, you can look to him who sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. Just as we sang earlier, behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. Jesus, the wisdom from God, became our righteousness. That's enough to praise him forever, but there's plenty more where that came from. Let's continue and look for more ways to talk big of God as we view Christ's greatness. Next, we move from the courtroom to the, I call it the temple room. That's where holy things are kept. There we see that not only is Jesus wisdom from God, not only is he our righteousness, he's also our sanctification. Speak of sanctification is to, again, return to the very early part of this letter. Back in verse 2, Paul addressed the Corinthians as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. When I cover that verse, I define sanctified as made holy, and made holy as set apart. 
just as we set apart precious heirlooms, things important, valuable items in secure places so that they're not damaged or stained, God sets believers apart, safe from the corruption and pollution of the world. This is what's known as positional sanctification. It's foundational for progressive sanctification. As we live up to the call of sanctity, we receive by faith. Now we go beyond the definition of sanctification to its function. We're in a genuine saving relationship with Christ Jesus. When he, when he is our Savior, He becomes our sanctification. And here's how He does that. Father set apart the Son to send into the world. Now it is the Son who sanctifies us, sets us apart. And those who are being sanctified by Jesus are one with Jesus. In an intimate relationship. See this truth in Hebrews 2, 11 to 12. He has radically altered our position, separated us, taken us out of the rest of the fallen universe. You're now made holy, set apart. And as it was the case with righteousness, there was a price for our sanctification. He gave himself. He sanctified us with this once-for-all offering of his body and the shedding of his own blood. That gets us to the final title there, we arrive at redemption. We've been to the classroom, the courtroom, and the temple room. Now we're at the jail room. Redemption refers to the ransom paid to transact the release of a prisoner. With this word redemption, one could argue that up among the three terms after wisdom, the apostles saved the best for the last. While righteousness and sanctification put our focus on the effect of Christ's work, redemption places most emphasis on Christ's death and the payment that was paid. We were bought with the price. Redemption reminds us that it's a costly price, the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It's a sacrificial price. The suffering servant gave all of himself He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's a sufficient price. It secured a ransom for all, not only from out of Israel, but out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I could go on and on about how Jesus is our wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. There's really no limit to the ways we can talk big of God as we view Christ's greatness. But to sum it up, we go on to verse 31. To complete our understanding of the good news, God's grace in Christ Jesus through faith in him, we must follow the scriptures and give glory to God alone. We see how Paul leans on the authority of the Bible. Back in verse 19, he discredited those who boast in the wisdom of the world using Isaiah 29 as a proof text. Now he again uses scriptures. This time the apostle refers to a part of Jeremiah to back up the claim that we must boast in God alone. Though it's not a long quote, it's helpful for context to read all of Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. 
Thus says the Lord, I'll read it. Uh, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Paul condenses all that to say, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Here's an interpreter question worth the moment of discussion. When it says glory in the Lord, is the Lord referring to God the Father or God the Son? If God the Son, Paul has just equated Jesus with the Lord, Yahweh, without hesitation, flinch, or shame. Or you could argue that the Lord refers to the Father. I tend to think it's the Son here. But whether the Lord in all caps here is the Father or the Son, the overall point would be the same. Boast in God. When you boast in the Lord, both the Father and the Son receive glory. When we consider Father working through His Son, it's hard to separate them in our worship, right? As Jesus said on the night before He went to the cross in John thirteen thirty one, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Also, He says in John seventeen one, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that your son also may glorify you. Putting verses 30 and 31 together, we see grace, Christ, faith, scriptures, and glory. By God's grace, we place our faith in Christ, our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The scriptures demand that we give glory to God alone. So again, talk little of self and review your humble calling. Talk big of God as you view Christ's greatness. To help you in this endeavor, I suggest that you let this closing song ring in your ears as you ring in a new year. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life. A mist vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We say of your son that he must increase, we must decrease. We pray that whatever the future may bring, as we dedicate ourselves to you, Pray that your great name will be glorified. Even if it's at the cost of our comfort, even if it bruises our ego, even if it means pain and suffering, we ask that you be glorified. And Lord, you've given us exactly how to glorify you as we think about your son, think about the good news of of our salvation, how you sent your son be your wisdom that became our wisdom, our, the one that we revere. So we ask that you would guide us this year. We dedicate ourselves to you, not just when the clock hits midnight, but at this very moment. We boast in you and your power and wisdom and salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.